I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Well, I often get the request to convert my work to work that is suitable for children. And even though I very frequently teach in uh, universities and schools, and I'm actually working on five fun little children's books, I have always worried. I never know if I am good enough, if you want to take the responsibility of teaching children about well-being, even though I believe at heart that children know more about well-being than we do. My guest today took that challenge of teaching children head on. Terry Rubenstein is the founder of iHeart, which is a global nonprofit organization established to help children uncover their innate well-being and resilience, if you want. It's been formed a few years ago, and so far, it's reached more than 25,000 children in over 22 countries around the world, and has also impacted on parents and teachers and organizational leaders and the whole concept of education at large. Terry is the co-author of the curriculum of iHeart, which has been translated to many languages and taught in schools from Montreal to Melbourne and from Jerusalem to Johannesburg, and from Greenland to Poland, and almost everywhere. The curriculum actually looks at the core principles of innate wellness, so the idea that wellness comes from within you, and the psychological and spiritual sides of well-being being the birthright of all people. She's creating a paradigm shift, really, in the way schools understand and address mental health issues, And in doing so, she's really driving a program that is a complete way for children to logically, scientifically, and insightfully learn about the source of well-being and how their minds work. Terry, as with all of my favorite guests, did not do this out of the blue. She did it out of an enormously impactful personal story an experience that I personally stopped when I read about the first time, in awe, really, that she turned from that point in her life into what she's doing right now. So we're going to be spending today's episode, the time of today's episode, to talk about not only the well-being of our children, but in a way, I'll also think of it as the well-being of each and every one of us. And I hope that you will enjoy this as much as I will do, because I think what Terry is onto here is something that we will all benefit tremendously from. Before we start the conversation, I will tell you, I'm recording this introduction after we had our conversation because I had so many technical issues and Terry was so generous and so kind and so gracious to wait for me until I sorted all of them out. Also, I want to tell you that we now are on YouTube. So if you'd like to join our conversation on video and audio, 
you'll find the link in our show notes. So let's not waste more time. A beautiful conversation that I think you will really enjoy with Terry Robinstein. Okay. Oh my God. So uh, this has officially been my most challenging tech setup in history. I hope that doesn't bode something about the this next hour. No, right? no, no, no. You have to understand my view of life is very straightforward. If everything is sort of like a, a hole and if it starts difficult, it finishes easy. That's how it is, right? So we've had the difficult part of this uh conversation and uh, and the rest will be easy. It has been actually, I was telling Terry before everyone joined us, my technology today, starting from my battery <laughs> all the way to the cameras and microphones, every single one of them said, no, nah, not today. And so I had to uh, do a lot of work and I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm very excited to meet you either way. So whether, whether we record it or not, we will record it, but I'm excited to meet you either way. Thank you so much for being here and for your patience. Thank you, Mo. It's a privilege, really. I have to, to say, I was going to brief our audience about what I read about you. And then I decided, no, that's actually not the right thing to do. I think you have, a, you have an amazing story and that amazing story can only be told by you. So would you mind sharing with our listeners? With pleasure. Um, I'll try to do something between the long and short version um, and you just stop me in between if you have any questions. Make it as succinct as possible. Yep, go for so it. So Mo, I, a bit like you, had a, and I guess you had a little bit more of a lead up to it, but I'd say a bit of a transformative moment in my life. That was the catalyst for a different trajectory. I mean, not only the work I did, but the experience I had in my relationship to life. And I guess just going back a little bit to the beginning, I was, a. Uh, in fact, I work a lot with young people now. That is my work. And I would say, similarly to a lot of young people I meet, I had a lot of struggles growing up. Nothing particularly out of the ordinary, but I guess I was that kind of quintessential little girl that wanted to be, I actually read a book when I was younger called The Best Little Girl in the World. <laughs> and I wanted to be the best little girl in the world. And, you know, I wanted to feel that I was comfortable in my own skin and that people liked me and that I was thin enough and good enough and pretty enough and clever enough. And I guess like many other teenagers and young people growing up, I felt that if I could get all of that sorted outside of myself, I would find a peace feel good enough within myself that I'd feel whole. So that was kind of my um, interaction with life, which we both know um, doesn't lead to a happy life and led to a life with a lot of internal struggle, which was often not visible because I was your classic kind of high achiever. And so on the outside, like many young people, I looked like I was popular and clever and getting it right. But on the inside, I had a lot of battles and self-doubt and self-consciousness and a whole bunch of other malaise. And um, I guess how I coped with those, which is similarly to a lot of youngsters and adults, is I find my own coping mechanisms. Mine weren't that healthy. Um, things like eating disorders, thought if I could starve myself and get thin enough, then I would be feel good enough about myself. And um, a lot of anxiety and depression and overthinking so I battled with these, but this was like in the 80s and 90s when there wasn't that much knowledge about mental health. It was actually just before Prozac came out. I was one of the first people that went on Prozac, really for my oh, bulimia wow. at the time. Prozac actually first came out, you know, to, to help with bulimia and overeating. 
Anyhow, this kind of continued on and off during my late teens and early 20s. And um, I guess I always kind of flirted with depression in a way that I had these kind of bouts of depression, but somehow with a bit of therapy and medication, I got through it. Came to my late 20s, I suddenly had immigrated three times. I gone from South Africa to Israel to London, actually back to Israel, back to London. Found myself with um, five young children under the age of seven. So I had um, wow. a lot going on. I was living in London at the time. And I'm going to take you to a day that was quite an important day in my life. It was day, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in February 2004. And I often tell people that I woke up, but not in my own bed. I woke up in the ICU of the Royal Free Hospital here in London. And um, I tried to take my own life and nearly succeeded. I was in a coma for quite a few days. And what led up to that is that I was going through what I'd call, I called in hindsight my The Great Depression. It was a depression that had lasted 18 months, and it wasn't like the other depressions. This one seemed like I was here to stay. And um, I often say it was, people say to me, how could you take such a step when you had five beautiful children? I had five boys at the time, now I have six. And um, I said it was like, you know, my favorite band, um, Pink Floyd, said it was a momentary lapse of reason. It was that moment of complete hopelessness where there's nothing rational, but I need to escape. It was my way of escaping in that moment. But what was interesting, Mo, wasn't all of that. It was what came after. Because when I came home from hospital for six weeks, I experienced something that confused me, kind of delighted me, but confused me. It was almost like I was enveloped in this deep feeling of peace. I felt peace. I felt an incredible feeling of love. I felt full and good enough and whole. My mind was crystal clear where for months and months, I just felt like I was treading through kind of mud. And um, it didn't make sense to me. And the reason it didn't make sense to Terry is really for most human beings, we feel like there's so many different things we need to fix or um, get right before we can feel that level of mm. peace and security. And all those things weren't not even tweaked, never mind fixed, you know, and that goes from my past to my present to my personality to my looks to the, the place I was living in London and have many friends to my husband his personality and I felt I needed a bit of a tweak to a whole bunch of things my career I had no career prospects at the time I've been bringing up these kids there were so many different things that I felt needed to be sorted in order to feel so peaceful inside and those hadn't and I think that this moment was it was much more it was a subconscious almost um, trajectory. It wasn't as obvious as I'm talking about now, but I think what it did is it catapulted me onto a different road because the road I was on was one of you've got mental, I don't know, mental health struggles and you need to have more medication and we need to look and see if you need to be an inpatient somewhere. And I kind of what happened after this period is that it got me thinking, how is it possible that I can feel so peaceful when none of this? Could it be that this, that this state, that this place of well-being is within me? You know, I often quote that um, one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry that I've come across that describes what I went through or discovered in myself was by the French philosopher um, and he was a Nobel laureate winner, Albert Camus. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his poem, um, but... It's, it kind of starts with, in the midst of hate, I found within me an invincible love. And in the midst of um, chaos, I found within me an invincible peace. 
In the mists of winter, I find within me an invincible summer. In the mist of tears, I find within me an invincible smile. And this gave me hope because I realized that as much as the world pushes against me, there's something more powerful, better, that's pushing right back. And that's what I discovered in those moments. And what it did is it led me to say, I'm going to give myself six months to actually fire Terry. Um, I almost made myself redundant. Everything I thought I knew about life, I felt was insignificant because it kept taking me in these spirals back to the same place. And I was going to go and try and almost get curious about how is it that people, human beings overcome adversity? What is it about that? And and as I went on that journey for kind of six months, I gave myself a time limit and said, if I hadn't found what I was looking for, I was going to kind of go back to the, the hands of the medical field, mainstream medical field. I think just to say one more thing about it is that I read a lot during that period and almost studied human beings in that period. And one of the things that I realized in the books that I was reading, because I read hundreds of books of people who came across um, struggle and adversity, and they were all so individually different, Mo. They had individual backgrounds and stories, and some were rich, some were poor, some came from functional backgrounds, dysfunctional, different ethnicities, religions. But there was a common thread running through all their stories. And that common thread at the time I called the human spirit. It was a little bit ethereal and vague for me. I knew I needed to kind of pin it down and, and see exactly what it was. But it seemed to account for this capacity human beings have to transcend adversity. And I was interested in it. And I thought, wow, is this a human thing? Could this be part of me too? Is this what I touched into in those six weeks? Anyhow, so this, this journey kind of led me to the work that I currently do, which is creating resilient and well-being programs for young people in schools and basically the last 15 years of my life, which is working in the mental health field and really teaching people about the source of well-being and um, almost logical and scientific way that our minds work and how it creates the human experience and what gets in the way of us living with more well-being. Oh, wow. I want to go into that in detail because what you're doing is amazing. But I have to say, I have like 16 questions on what you just shared. So I'll go very, very, very all the way back first, if you don't mind me doing this. So what you suffered from that whole idea of being a perfectionist, trying to be number one, trying to be the best at everything. Well, that's not uncommon, right? I mean, so many of us, sadly, we grow up in this world and for some reason, we're just completely convinced that the only way is to actually be number one, to get an A plus and A plus plus. And if we get only an A, that's not good enough. And whatever it is, really, whatever we, we put ourselves into is not enough. And I believe you've reflected a lot on this probably in your life. Where does this come from? At least in your story, where did it originate? Well, one of the things I feel is that this notion that we're not good enough, that we don't have what we need to be good enough, makes a lot of sense to me because it's counterintuitive to the way life presents itself. You know, one of the ways that we talk about this when we teach young people is that if you think about a young child that comes into the world, they are dependent on their parents, right? Because without their parents, they, they can't survive. So there's a sense of that there's something outside of me that needs to give me security, you know, and then as we grow older, we project that onto things. You know, one of the first things young people project that onto are teddy bears, right? 
So they think that this teddy bear makes me feel comforted and gives me a sense of peace and I feel okay or good enough inside when I have this teddy bear, right? And then we all know that a teddy bear is a inanimate stuffed animal, right? And it's not making that child feel better. So what is making that child feel better? They're feeling something that's within them, that invincible summer that I spoke about, that well-being that we call innate, that's built in, that's a part of us, that's our birthright. But they're attributing, misattributing it to the teddy bear. And now whenever the teddy bear isn't with them, they think that the teddy bear's taken away, that that situation's taken away their well-being, and they need that teddy bear to give it up. The like, kind of locus of power has gone on to something else. And of course, we grow up and we are in this kind of um, paradigm where it feels like there are all these things that can give us well-being. And by well-being, I mean a sense of worth and optimism and feeling good enough and peace and all those beautiful qualities that are essential qualities of being human. And we feel that things can give it to us and take it away from us. That paradigm sets up the trajectory of thinking in our minds that makes us feel insecure. It actually sets up a trajectory of insecure thinking. It takes us away from our true na nature or our natural true selves. And so I think that it's, um, to me, it's almost an anomaly when I meet people. And of course, there are many people like that. I live with some, some of my sons are like this, who almost naturally grow up with the sense of feeling like their security lies within them and not misattributing it to things outside of themselves. It's also almost a different paradigm that some people almost come into this world and they seem wiser. It seemed like your son Ali was one of those. It's almost a, a natural intuition they have about that. So you're saying it's the need to be secure that drives us to be almost insecure, which is quite shocking when you really hear it that way. Because when we're constantly struggling that way, when we're constantly trying to find security in other things, in achievements, in a teddy bear or in a job or whatever that is, then that by definition means that we're the most insecure people on the planet, basically. And it's so counterintuitive when you think about it this way. 100%. And that's what, you know, Mo, the, one of the things that we teach and educate young people about is that we almost show that our minds take a trajectory of two roads and both of them have like almost a premise at the bottom. You know, a way of describing it is that, you know, a flat earth or a round earth. So if we believe we live in a flat earth, there's a way that our minds are going to operate to try help us live in a flat earth. And there's a logic in a flat earth, like I've got to avoid the edge. Now, that's very responsible if it's true that we live in a flat earth. We do want to avoid the edge. And how can we live well in a flat earth? Now, that's a very different logic to if your mind, if the premise your mind's coming from that you live in a round earth, right? They're two different logics. And so there's a way that at the bottom of the road, to me, in terms of kind of the human experience, we're all searching for the same thing. Right, We're all searching for that sense of security and freedom of mind and peace of mind. And there's just a way that when we don't know where the source of that is, that almost we are on what we call a false premise, and it leads our mind on a trajectory of thinking, which is actually taking us further away from the very thing that we want, as you said. That is so eye-opening. Can I take us to that moment, that critical moment of momentary lapse of reason? Mm -hmm. By the way, hats off. Big Pink Floyd fan myself, I'm sure there are other wise people on the conversation with us. If you're not a Pink Floyd fan, honestly, what are you doing here? Seriously, it's true. I mean, like, yeah, it is true. It is, uh, 
It's a little so that's depressing That's one of those absolute beginning. truths, Mo, no? Yeah, right, right. It is undeniable. And the thing about Pink Floyd, you start with listening to an album and then you think you get it. But then you realize on the third time you listen to it that you didn't get anything at all. And then now you think you get it. And then six times later, you realize you didn't get it still. And now you get it, right? And isn't that a wonderful experience? Anyway, not pushing Pink Floyd on anyone, but stop the podcast and go listen to, you know, <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon or something. Anyway, having said that, momentary lapse of reasons, I mean, in an interesting way, it's scary what you said. And I know from observing your work now, how giving and responsible you are. But at that time, your mind completely says, that's it. Five kids should find their own way and I need to escape, right? This, by the way, I don't think is unusual. So people who, who get to that point where they are about to take their own life, I always say it's not because of depression, it's because of despair. It's because of constant depression that takes us to the point where we realize, well, there is only one escape, which is to end this episode, right? And if you're open to sharing that moment, that feeling, what happened there and what do you think could have been a way to help you, to stop you from getting to that point? So first of all, that's a great question. One of the things that I've learned now that I didn't know then was that there's a way that the when we're not feeling good, Mo, there's something around normalizing the human experience that the current psychological paradigm has done a very poor job of because we have medicalized the human experience yeah, and, um, and we're frightened of it. And as soon as somebody feels discomfort, we feel like we have to get rid of it. There's something wrong and we panic and we grab at every technique positive or negative, doesn't matter, to try and get away from that feeling. Um, and I was terrified of my own experience. I was absolutely terrified of not feeling good. And as soon as I didn't feel good, there was almost like, I used to have this image. I know this sounds, this is how extreme I was. I used to have this image of a gun going off against my head whenever I felt bad, anxious or depressed. But you see, there's a logic behind that because there's almost a way that the mind was saying to me, there's a way to escape from this. That's, that's the best way. It's the ultimate way to escape from this, right? Um, now, by the way, doing yoga or going for a run or something is another way to escape from it. Um, but that's not what my mind used to give me, um, maybe because of the extremity of my personality. So I had struggled with suicidal ideation for a long time. And I think it was just in that moment of feeling such deep, deep, deep pain. That's all my mind had to offer up for me. There was nothing else. And, and what happens is that you don't, it's a myopic experience. You don't have anything outside of it. You don't have peripheral vision to even think about your kids or anything else. It's not a rational place. It's just a place of extreme pain. And what comes into your mind is there's something that can help you now. And it's almost like you, it's, it's very hard for me to even sit here with you and talk about it as, as a kind of, as you say, you know, hopefully semi-rational mature person um, because it doesn't make sense. But in that, as I was saying, in that flat earth where I was falling over the edge, that looked like the only rope. It was the only rope that my mind oh. offered up for me. Mm. 
which of course the problem is if anyone had told you otherwise, you wouldn't believe them. So the idea of realizing that going for a run or doing yoga is also an alternative is something that needed to be generated from your own mind in a way. How do we get people to, to be in that mindset? How do we get people away from that thought into thoughts that are actually more irrational if we want, which I think is a lot of your work, a lot of what you do. Very much so. You know, Mo, coming right, like stripping it back to the, the very beginning, which is that when we teach young people that these beautiful qualities, as I said, of peace of mind, of deep contentment, of clarity of mind, of optimism, of resilience are built in. And we don't just tell them that. We Everything we do, we get them to test it. We want to show them the logic and the science behind that. So everything's experiential in our curriculums. Because at first, of course, any young thinking person is going to say that's not true, right? When someone says something mean to me, that does take away my well-being. And when someone compliments me, that gives it to me. So it doesn't look intuitive to them that well-being is unconditional, right? It doesn't look that way. But when they start to see the truth of that, then what they start to see is, well, the next question they ask is, well, how come I don't feel my well-being all the time if it's within me, if it's a constant, if it's built in, if it's the fabric of my psyche, nature of my soul? And so we teach them that it's not because somebody's stolen it or taken it away from you. It's because it gets covered up. The analogy that we use is like just like the sun gets covered with clouds, but it's still there. Our well-being gets covered by our own insecure thinking, but it's still there. It's our constant companion. And there's a way that we give them a different um, definition of what mental health is, because we tell them that it's human, that your well-being will get covered up. And, and we can talk about why we teach them exactly what covers it up and how to uncover it. We go to the root cause of it. But we say it's human that it will get covered up. That happens to everybody. So whether you're experiencing the full beauty of your well-being, whether it's partially covered up or fully, it's still within you. The knowledge that it's still there is very empowering. It's actually the most reliable thing that we have. Like it's very stabilizing and also, you know, Mo, I always say what we essentially do with young people is we give them an instruction manual to understand, well, why am I feeling so bad now? Exactly what's going on and how do I navigate myself through this territory of uncovering my well-being? Because we give them almost an in-depth, um, very logical instruction manual, they now feel they can use that to navigate their way through this territory um, rather than just feel like they're at the facts of their mind. You see, I used to feel that my mind was um, just this um, random kind of crazy thing that could make me feel ways I didn't want to feel. And I felt very victimized by my own mind. And, you know, one of the most important things we teach young people is that our psychological system, like all systems, is an intelligent system. And it has an order to it. It has a predictive nature to it. And it has a logic to it. And we teach them how that works. And so even when they're not feeling good, they can see what the logic is. And they can see how to interact with that in a way that they can help themselves rather than just feeling like I'm almost a victim of, you know, my own experience at the moment. So let's talk about your nonprofit organization. So, so tell us a little bit about it. You started this after your six months, right? So you, you spent six months with you. You realized, whoa, there is a way out of this. Let me teach the world about this. I think that deserves a little more unpacking than how I just said it. Okay, so, well, it wasn't straight after the six months, I would say what happened is I found myself, and again, it wasn't something I could articulate at the time, but I was living like a different person, Mo. 
Um, I felt light. I felt hopeful. I loved life. I would drive in the, you were talking about the London weather and the pouring grey London weather going to fetch my children. And I feel this is beautiful. So I feel I was gifted to live in that kind of state of mind for probably around two years. It was beautiful. A lot of information comes to you when you're in a state of well-being. There's a lot of knowledge that comes to you. Um, and I think it was almost, uh, you know, I believe this is Terry's own story, um, take it or leave it, that it was for a reason that I had that knowledge almost gifted to me because of the work I was going to do. I didn't want to be do work in the kind of world of psychology. I was, I didn't like psychology, Mo. I'd been, I felt let down by it. I'd gone to many therapists. I didn't find therapy helpful at all. It gave me a lot of self-awareness, but it didn't give me the insight to actually integrate anything and change as a person. It's almost like I walked around with a lot of self-awareness about my childhood, my personality, and just didn't change. So I was a big skeptic. I never, ever envisaged myself being in this field. But what happened after around 18 months is that I came across somebody who started to speak about kind of principles, um, simple principles that accounted for the human experience. And it was psychologists and psychiatrists that were talking at a more principle level and I guess when people talk at a principal level, because I'm actually Orthodox Jewish, I became religious at the age of 18, and I saw something deeply spiritual and deeply logical. And, and to me, spirituality and logic are mm -hmm. two sides of the same coin. They should be, mm -hmm. right? It all made sense to me. So when I started to hear these people speaking at this level, I thought, wow, this is a different way of understanding the human experience. And I started to study that, and then I started to read books, a lot of David Bohm, Krishnamurati, people like that. And just it kind of led to a, a framework, what we call a way of interact, of kind of teaching and talking about this. And there was somebody who worked for another charity that asked me to join and just start to get some momentum going in the charity. It wasn't iHeart at the time. And I worked for 10 years in the charity, building up this work, doing one-on-ones, doing groups, doing conferences. And eventually there was a big momentum of it. And I decided to leave and kind of form iHeart. Um, and iHeart really, the, the inspiration for that was Mo, after working with adults for many, 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 many years and refining the teaching, there's no better laboratory than working day in, day out with people in groups, right? Um, I felt that we needed to teach the young people because every adult said, I wish I knew this when I was younger. And I kept seeing that the insecurities that every adult was speaking about, whether it's in their private relationships or their work relationships or to themselves, had all begun in kindergarten or before, right? When that little boy said, I don't want to play with you. And they felt like that created some kind of feeling of pain or rejection, etc. And all the misunderstandings that we deal with as adults are created when we're younger. So I thought, let's go work with the kids. So that was really the inspiration in finding our heart. You work with the kids. So more the numbers I have is more than 15,000 kids reached so far. So, so far we've been working with, um, we worked with 20,000 young people in the last three or four years. Um, we created a curriculum. It's a 11 hour curriculum, which we go, we've trained 600 facilitators globally around the world. It's a three month training, a hundred hours. They get trained in this curriculum and then they go out and teach it. We've now moved to digital because we see that um, we can't scale and get to the kind of numbers we want to create a paradigm shift. We've got a big vision. I know you have too, with a person standing in front of children. So we've now, we've just actually finished creating our first digital program. 
for the children to attend it directly without a facilitator? Our main target at the moment is schools because that's where the children are. So all our work's been done in schools. You know, that's, mm. that's where they kind of conscripts, <laughs> captive audience. Yeah. And that's where the children are and that's where the children are not taught about their well-being. Let's put it this way. 100%. Yeah. I always say it's a missing piece of education. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always been very, very open about education. I actually think what you're creating online is probably what education is all about. You know, we normally mix up the idea of learning and the idea of education. Education is just a technology that was simply conceived thousands of years ago. It's instead of teaching someone something, get five of, of them in one place and then teach all five, it's more efficient, right? But I think that technology is proven uh, a little less effective recently, let's put it this way. Can I go back? So a child will be taught about what causes stress, what causes those unhappy feelings, the depressions and so on. Tell me what are like the top three lessons we try to teach a child in that program. First of all, Mo, there's, for us, there's always a framework, a basic framework that needs to be taught, almost a foundation. And then, and then children, then we apply it into different topics. So the starting point is that we want children, young people to recognize that, um, that these, what well-being is and where it's found, to start to see that, um, that it is within us and it's not outside of us. And we almost show them that it's human for all of us, me too. I've been teaching this for 15 years and there are areas in my life where I believe that certain things can give me well-being or take it away from me, right? And that could be people, things like people appreciating you, common one, right? Recognition, people appreciating you. That can give me well-being if people appreciate me, recognize me, and if they don't, it can take it away. We call these attachments, you know, like I said with the teddy bear, we call this attached well-being. We all have that. It can be finances. It can even be things, Mo, like the health of your kids, the well-being of your kids. Of Many course. parents attach their well-being. They say, if my kids are okay, I can be okay. If my kids aren't, I can't, right? Now, the most beautiful thing is you had an experience of the fact of having deep, deep peace when your child wasn't okay, right? When Ali passed. And that was such proof to you that that's possible, that well-being is unconditional, even in the face of a parent's worst nightmare. Now, most parents would question that. They think that because they haven't had that experience. But we teach children the truth of that as a across-the-board truth. And then we get them to start to get curious about their attachments. What are the attachments that they have that seem to be able to give or take away their well-being? And we get them to kind of almost see. So, Mo, for example, if a child believes that if they achieve good results that can make them feel good. And if they achieve bad results, it can make them feel bad. So results or achievements can give or take away their well-being. Imagine the stress that child's going to have around exams. Anytime there's exams or something that's kind of kind of seeing how, how good they are, they're going to start to feel a lot of stress and they're going to have a lot of thinking. Now, the interesting thing I wanted to say to you, Mo, is that I think this is such an important point, you know, and, and you're, you're the happiness expert, so you can tell me what you think of this. One of the things that we teach young people, because we try to give them signposts to show them when they're on what we call the attached well-being road, things that you're going to feel like yeah. being anxious, controlling, having expectations, comparing yourself to others, jealousy, all of these things are almost clues or signposts, psychological clues that you're on the attached well-being road. 
right? Because of course you're going to try to control your environment when it feels like that that thing can take away your well-being, right? And of course you're going to be stressed about something that can take away your well-being. It makes absolute sense. So we teach them those signposts. One of the signposts that we teach them is something called attached positive feelings. And attached positive feelings means all these qualities I was talking about, which are innate, we can experience those qualities on the attached well-being road, but they're not those kind of qualities of well-being because they're attached to something or someone. So I'm happy because I got an A plus on my exam. I'm hopeful because it looks like I'm going to get that job offer. I'm whatever it is. I'm feeling peaceful because all my kids are doing well. Now, yeah. that's not well-being because that's attached to something. And as soon as your mm -hmm. kids aren't doing well, as soon as your grades drop, that happiness falls away with it. And that's what, to me, a lot of people are confused about in this kind of current kind of psychological paradigm, because a lot of us are feeling secure and happy because of, that's what we of call course. attached positive feelings. And then we yeah. get all kind of confused by why are we going like this all the time, up and down and up and down. So that's something that we teach children. So we're really teaching them about, also what we do is we track their thinking. We show them like, if you believe that exams, that exam result can take away your well-being, what's the kind of thinking you'll have? And they start to see the kind of thinking they'll have is very logical and predictable. The mind's always trying to help us. So it's going to try and see, should I study? Oh, but I don't want to study. And what happens if I don't do well? And all the thinking of the mind is actually very logical and predictable. We want them to see that there's a logic the mind's working from. It's always following a premise and it's always got a very logical trajectory. But of course, as you know, we feel our thinking, so it feels very uncomfortable, that thinking. You know, and we give the children a whole bunch of questions to get curious about the attachments, the thoughts, to start to poke holes in them, to see, question them. Because, Mo, when that attachment falls away, when we don't believe, a person doesn't believe that their achievements can give or take away their well-being, when that kind of iceberg falls away, all that thinking attached to it falls away too. You don't believe that the earth's flat. All the thinking about how to live in a flat earth falls away too. And one of the things that I think is a, is a big discovery we've had is that it's much, much more powerful when a person gets that um, insight around the premise, that the premise is not true, rather than trying to work with the thinking on that road, trying to make it better. Because it's mm. almost like just trying to have a nasty experience of living in a flat earth rather than actually having an experience of living in a round earth. I think this is very profound, actually. So, so getting to the premise is, I have not included that in my work, even though, you know, when you think about the six grand illusions and the seven blind spots, I sort of address the mechanics that lead to the premise, right? Yeah. Yes. But, but it's so interesting when you say, look, if you believe that your well-being is going to only be a result of you achieving in an exam, this is almost the Jedi master level of happiness when you really think about it. You know, this is what the Sufis would call to die before you die. To realize that attaching to anything, Buddhists also talk about this. I think all spiritual teachings talk about this. To attach to an object that leads to your happiness or an event that leads to your happiness or to a person that leads to your happiness 
is an almost sure recipe that leads to unhappiness because we live in a changing world and whatever it is that you'll attach to is going to eventually disappear from your life sooner or later or change, right? Or even more interestingly, you're going to change. So the presence of that thing in your life is not going to be sufficient anymore. And it's quite interesting. If you realize that, you start to actually look at life very differently. It's the premise that I need to change. But how can people find the premise? I mean, when you talk to people who believe that the earth is flat, it's not even a topic of discussion for them anymore. It's like, I've made up my mind. It is what it is. What are we talking about? Such a good point, Mo. And, you know, it's interesting because David Bohm says um, he's, he writes about the fact that we have these things as human beings that are necessary. We believe they're a necessity. And he says the Latin word of necessity is, is sedere. And that means something that won't yield. So it won't yield. And, and in a way, if something's true or real, it doesn't yield, right? You can't shift it. Yeah. And, and these things feel rock solid to us. And as a result, we don't even think about poking holes or challenging them because they, they're true, they're real, they're necessary. Of course, it's necessary for my child to be okay in order for me to feel peaceful or free or secure. What kind of person would even challenge that? And so what we do is that, I mean, for young people is that that's why it's so important to spend a lot of time and be we thoughtful about how to get them on board with the fact that their well-being is built in. There's a lot of experiential things we do to prove that to them that their well-being is built in, because then they see that these attachments, and it's not that hard to find the attachments, because, Mo, the interesting thing is that there's probably around five or six main categories that human beings have of attachments. Really, there are. So once you've kind of got them, it's going to almost be one of them. So Do you know what those are? I'm, I think that's worthy of being in a book. What are our five or six attachments, or at least some of them in your mind? So tell you that what I feel the main categories are. Our health, your physical health, mm. right? So mm. if I'm healthy, then I can be okay. And if I'm not healthy, I can't, right? And we've all seen people, exceptions to that. Whenever they're exceptions, we know that's not truth. We've seen people who have died very gracefully, etc., right? Or have got a terminal illness and are feeling very peaceful and secure inside. A big one is the, the health of our loved ones or the well-being of our loved ones, right? If mm. my loved ones are okay, then, I, then I'm okay, a big one is um, people appreciating us, right? Appreciating if, if we need people to appreciate us, recognize us. A big one is financial security. If I have financial security, I can be okay. If I don't, I can't. Another one is, let me think what else. Um, you know, you could say things like achievements or getting things right. You know, I need to get mm. things right. You know, that kind of mm. perfectionist, I need to achieve things or get things right. Almost every circumstance that comes up almost fits into those things. You see, just you can try to think of one, but they almost all fit into those categories. I think the two that come to mind would be justice, to feel that we're justly treated. Yes. And, yes. and the other one would probably be, in the modern world, would probably be a romantic love. I think yes. a lot of people suffer because, ah, oh, I can't find the person of my dreams and, you know, and it's actually quite interesting because for so many people, again, like you rightly say, there are many, many examples of people who are so happy just because they didn't find that one. So, you know, it's like, it's like life is amazing without that person. So in any case, but that's well, such Those two are beautiful, Mo. I love that you said those two, because one thing is a sense of justice, right? And so much of that you saw around COVID, 
because people felt that there was a sense of injustice and people struggled. I mean, we dealt with people that struggled incredibly psychologically because they felt there was an injustice to the way that COVID was being and the implications of that on them. And it almost felt like they couldn't have freedom of mind in the face of this injustice. Mm. And the love is true too, because to me, Love is something that's within us, connection something that's within us. Yeah, I differentiate heavily, though, between love and romantic love. I think romance is a highly glorified version of love that is dictated to us by Hollywood. I think love exists all the time. It might not be in a romantic form, but you could have the love of your parents, the love of your friends, the love of everyone. You could actually have the love of someone that could be a romantic partner for you, but is not romantic in that case. But if you're into men, you can have men friends that are really, really loving and kind and connected. It's just that romantic bit that I think people really struggle with. And I understand why fully, by the way, because it is a world that is becoming very confusing in terms of finding that. I want to go back to your work. So how do people find you? I mean, I'm guessing half of my listeners now who have children are saying, I need to take my child through this. What should they do? Well, we have a website, iheartprinciples.com. There's a lot of information on that. And um, we'd love to work with the more children, the better. We also work with parents, teachers, anyone in the child's world, because we feel that there's a, there's a language and there's a way of understanding mental well-being that needs to be kind of the whole world of the child, which obviously the parents and teachers are such a big part of that. Um, so if anyone wants to go to our website, you can get all the information there. Very good. iheartprinciples.org. Dot com. Dot com. Okay. So people, if you're interested, please go there and support this work. I kept two questions till the uh, end, if you don't mind me saying. So you're an Orthodox Jew and I'm uh, a fruit salad, as I always say. I believe in all religions. I find beautiful core in every one of them and some mistakes in every one of them. And so I, I sort of study all of them. Can I ask you what, what you think the impact of religion is on our well-being? So Mo, the reason why that's to me a complex question is that it really depends on how you're relating to religion. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a way that I'd say when we say we call kind of off track and on track about the roads we teach, you can have an attachment to religion. Um, It's almost where you feel that religion needs to give you something and needs to do something for you. And there can be quite an unhealthy relationship to it. To me, when a person's in their well-being, there's a way that there's, I once heard a quote, you click from the God outside to the God inside. There's a way that um, you feel unified with God and there's, there's a depth and a way that you're interacting with religion where it helps you to see through the illusion of the physical world, you know, which none of us really can see through, I guess, unless you've had an enlightened experience, but it gives you a framework for that, for seeing that there's something deeper that's going on behind the scenes that's impossible for the human mind to maybe comprehend or understand. It gives you an orientation towards that. And so it can be an incredibly uplifting, and it's a way to live where you takes you away from the ego out into, you know, one of the things I always say that I try to do, I fail a lot of the time, but part of what religions help me to do is that you're looking to negate your will to the will of God or align the two. You know, you're aligning the two. So it's not what Terry wants to do. It's like, what's the right thing to do now? And it's a different orientation because it's one more of service. 
And it also gives you, you know, a sense of your own purpose in the world and the what we call, like, I guess, the Hebrew word is the tikkun, the kind of journey that your soul's on to complete whatever needs to complete in this world. Oh, that's beautiful. What's that word again? Tik- it's tikkun? called tikkun, T-I-K-U-N. Mm. It's almost something that a soul needs to go on before it can leave the world a completion, you know, a journey that we, that we need to go on. And um, it gives you almost a blueprint of that, a direction for that. So to me, for me personally, I mean, religion's been an incredibly helpful, but I can see how for a lot of people it's complex and misunderstood and, and can be used in an unhealthy way. I mean, what do you yeah. think, Mo? I can see exactly where you're coming from on this. I think the reality is that the true definition of religion, I think, has been muddied with some of the acts of the religious people. Sadly, like with mainstream media or the people that claim to be religious, if you ask me, like with mainstream media, I always say there is so much good in the world, but we only notice what is negative, what is wrong, what is evil. I think if you look at the religious establishment around the world, you'll see that there is a lot of bad stuff happening. And accordingly, if you relate religion to that, then it's not really the best thing to follow, if you ask me. But at the same time, there are people, many, 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 and as I I say in my research on happiness, of course, you have to talk to lots of spiritual leaders and lots of spiritual people. And... And there is a lot of core beauty in all of that that is to be taught and associated with. I think that the best learning on the topic comes without the ego, like you rightly said, without being attached to the religion, but rather to the tiko. What did you call it? (laughs) Tikon. (laughs) Tikon, tikon, right? But to that spiritual path, I think that's actually a really, really beautiful way of looking at it. But having said that, I, I keep telling people, that our world is made up of two sides, if you want. There is our physical being, which to return that to its proper default setting of well-being, you have to focus on some of the physical stuff happening in your world, but your spiritual being should not be ignored because a big part of you is spiritual as well. You know, it's not that flesh and bone and blood and so on. There is something to you, your consciousness, your spirit, if you want, if you call it in a religious way or whatever that is, that actually is not physical. And so attending to this in my book after next, the one I'm writing with Alice called Unstressable, I talk about something that we call, or Alice talks more about something we call spiritually stressed, being stressed on your spiritual side. And most of us don't even work on that, don't recognize that, don't realize that. And of course, I think religion offers a bit of a cheat sheet, if you want, to some of that spiritual connection. Can I go to my favorite question, which I had to leave to the end, even though it was said at the beginning. So you go to the ICU and you wake up and then suddenly everything's changed. Suddenly you realize you're good enough. Suddenly you realize But nothing really changed. It's not like you achieved anything in that ICU room that you didn't before. You didn't acquire something that you were missing. How does that work? I mean, there is such a strong message in this, Terry, that you could simply be the happiest person on earth with exactly what you have right now, or you could be the saddest person on earth trying to commit suicide with exactly what you have right now. The difference between them for you is 
a few days of coma and then you wake up and then you see the world differently. How does that work? Well, first of all, I have to tell you a funny story that um, I don't remember being in hospital at all. I don't even remember mm. coming home. Apparently, when I woke up in the ICU, I started to take all the wires out of me and say, I'm getting out of here, which is typical me, you know, even when I had all my births. <laughs> After six hours, I was out the hospital. Um, and apparently, a psychiatrist came to see me to kind of ascertain whether I was healthy enough to leave or a risk to myself. And they said to me, my husband told me this, I, I had no recollection. How do I know that you won't do something stupid like this again? And apparently I said to them, which was really typically me, I just, I said, I just might because Chris told me that I have um, choice, that I have free choice. Uh, Chris was my psychologist at the time who for like two years had been trying to tell me that I have choice, right? And I just argued against him. I don't have choice. I'm stuck in this. My situation is what it is, right? Because it felt like life was happening this way rather than this way to me. Um, but it was interesting, Mo. When I heard that, I was like, what? Like, what happened that I had a shift to even say that in that moment? It obviously had been absorbing almost into my subconscious, but my conscious wasn't ready to believe that. So it's almost like the way that I answered that psychiatrist in that moment was, was really interesting. So I think something had been brewing in me for a while. And I think what happened, Mo, when I came out is that for so long I'd been, my head had been full, you know, as I said, in my flat earth, when I was looking for escape or something to make me feel better, I'd been thinking about ways to escape that pain. But how can I do that? I've got kids and I'm so stuck. And all I'd been thinking about was how I could kind of, I don't know, die. And then what happened is that when I came out of the coma, it's almost like I had done it. Something I'd been fighting against for so long, I'd actually done. So it's almost like my mind quietened down for a while. You know, you call it your Becky. <laughs> Becky quietened down for a while. And Mo, when our minds quieten down, we feel what I call um, our true nature. We feel who we really are. So that's what I felt. My mind kind of gifted me some quiet for six weeks. And what I experienced was my true nature. And um, just to say, Mo, that I do believe that everybody gets these moments, these opportunities, these lessons. But a lot of the times we look past them or we, you know, we explain them away. And I just think that it's lucky when a human being can actually look at what I call a moment of truth or insight and actually use it as a catalyst for more learning. And for whatever reasons, I was able to do that. And I'm very grateful. That's incredible. We have a choice. And if the mind quietens down a little bit, you just see your true self. And so suddenly you're able to make the right choice. Gave I think hope. that's incredible. Yeah. And I think you did make the right choice because, you know, all the work that you do is incredible. It really is quite something. And I'll be open and honest, for years I've been trying so hard to build something for children and found it almost beyond my skill set. And the fact that you're building it is quite amazing and it's quite needed in the world. I'll send you a kind of new digital thing to have a look at and see what I you think. Six 20-minute yeah. episodes, the first introductory piece. Absolutely. I, I think that's something that's really, really needed. And uh, for anyone listening, if you, if you have a child, please give them that chance. Go to iheartprincipal.com, principles.com, and uh, give them the chance. Give them the chance to learn about their well-being. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Terry, I cannot thank you enough. I apologize once again for the technical uh, glitches, but I think it led us to a wonderful conversation. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It's been a privilege, really, Mo. Thank you. Really enjoyed the it. The privilege is totally mine. And for all of you that, that are listening, I hope you enjoyed this. I think in a way, when I was asking Terry the questions, I wasn't asking for your children. I was asking for us as well. There is so much to learn from the fact that we have this choice and from the fact that those attachments are truly what makes us suffer because without the attachments, positive or negative, by the way, you die before you die. And when you die before you die, you fully, fully, fully live. I think that's a beautiful thing to uh, aspire for. If you enjoyed this, please share it with those that you love. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, if you haven't rated us five stars, please rate uh, Slow Mo five stars. It helps us uh, spread the message and reach more audience. And uh, while you're at it, just write down, scribble on a piece of paper, just to remind you that regardless of how busy your life is nowadays, uh, there's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.